The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Anthony Rising edition. It's Wednesday, June 27th, 2018. On today's show, The Incredibles 2, it revives the Parr family of superheroes for a second go-round. How did the architecture of a Pixar classic hold up after a 14-year hiatus, and not to mention all the countless superhero flicks we've suffered through in between? And then an ESPN podcast explores the very dark side of Bikram, the man who more than anyone brought yoga to America. And finally, astrology was bound to find a new lease on life on the internet, and their by among younger people, millennials in particular. This has happened. All of this is boring next to the salient fact, though, which is that Dana, Julia, and Steve are going to have their charts read by our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. I should say also our in-house millennial. Hey, Julia. Hi. Sagittarius here. And of course, Dana Stevens, uh, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey. Can you guess what my sign is from this? Scuttle, scuttle. <laughs> hey, Steve. <sighs> oh, dear. Aquarian here. All right, let's dig right in. Uh, been about 14 years since The Incredibles became a critical and box office hit for Pixar. Uh, the Parr family of superheroes are once again being jerked in and out of retirement by the whims of the public and policymakers, though this time they're pawns in a larger scheme by a quite topical supervillain known as Screenslaver who would like to 86 the so-called supers for good. The the movie's voiced by uh, Holly Hunter, Craig T. Nielsen. They're joined by some newcomers, Bob Odenkirk and Catherine Keener, chief among them. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. Looks normal to me. When did this start happening? Since Helen got the job. I assume she knows. Are you kidding? I can't tell her about this. Not while she's doing hero work. Mama. Girl, come on. Leave the saving of the world to the men? I don't I've got to succeed so she can succeed, so we can succeed. I get it, Bob. I get it. When was the last time you slept? Who keeps track of that? Besides, he's a baby. I can handle it. I got this handle. So, you're good then. You got everything under control, right? <laughs> what the? <laughs> <laughs> okay, to, to, to give some context to that clip, um, you know, the uh, father of the family has been left at home with the kids while Elastigirl, his wife, is uh, uh, enlisted to go save the universe. There's a gender swap. Meanwhile, their infant child, Jack-Jack, is just discovering that he has superpowers too. Uh, Dana, we've got a lot of places to go with this movie, I'm sure. I mean, you know, the gender politics of it, the Anthony Lane review, we'll get there. But first, did you like this movie? I did. I loved The Incredibles too. I was so, so delighted by it. It may partly be because I saw it next to a 12-year-old who was just cackling uproariously, especially at every scene involving the baby Jack-Jack, like the one we just heard. But I think I liked this better than the first Incredibles, possibly. I am so fascinated that you loved this movie, Dana. I was like, yeah, all right, that was fine. It seemed fine. Seemed like a fine family entertainment for 2018. I would um, agree that it doesn't have the profundity of Inside Out or you know or the Toy Story trilogy or some other 
Pixar movies. And I think that's true of the first one, too. I don't I didn't cry during this movie. I didn't feel that level of deep character identification. And the action scenes were just so beautifully choreographed. Yeah, the action scenes are really great. And some of the characters are great. I really liked both the Bob Odenkirk and Catherine Keener characters, this uh, sibling pair, Winston and Evelyn Dever. I do think that the movie feels sort of behind the moment in some way, um, in a couple ways. One is sort of the aesthetic, right? The the retro mid-century modern aesthetic of the first movie is back in this movie, but uh, we've now spent years and years and years contemplating that aesthetic and buying versions of that aesthetic at Ikea and CB2 and uh, watching Mad Men. And, you know, it's 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 not quite so fresh to be in that like retro futurist space. That all, that stuff all feels behind. And then the this question of like, oh, vigilante justice, superheroes, inside, outside the law, blah, 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 blah. Like those are the quote unquote fascinating moral stakes of like every fucking superhero movie now. And I, it, it's like just not... I mean, you know, the question of how one responds to a broken government and how one solves problems is obviously a pressing moral question of the moment. But I didn't feel like this movie really had anything interesting to say about that. And then the my final complaint would be about the gender stuff, which is like, dopey dad realizes that parenting is hard work while mom has to fight crime and get a job. And no, it's so hard for her to be away from her tots. Like, that's just not news. I don't know. It just didn't feel fresh to me. Hmm. I I loved it. I'm Team Dana on this one. I really like the first one. I think it begins a little frenetically with an obligatory and obligatory action set piece that just struck me as everything the first one hadn't been, which was frenetic and a little pointless, and did remind me of the kind of you know cinematic universe bloat that we've all become uh, accustomed to, sort of sadly accustomed to. But as it went on, especially as Jack Jack became uh, the comic centerpiece of the movie, I agree. The raccoon uh, fight scene is just. Is just masterful and funny and deft in every way. Like the, this little infant finding its superpowers, I thought was was wonderful. Um, I just thought it became sure of itself and sleek um, and beautifully delivered. And it it and it 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 brought me back to the conclusion. I, you know, one comes to over and over again. What's missing from superhero movies isn't that they're like deeper or darker. I mean, they keep pushing further into false profundity and relevance and only getting worse as movies what they lack is craft and that you know all these movies need to be is is i mean all quote unquote all they need to be is is well crafted and in this instance this one to me is is just you know maybe just a, a hair shy of being beautifully crafted it's it's action sequences are purposeful beautifully choreographed and cogent you don't you don't lose where you are you know, in space in the middle of them and then suddenly have no sense of anything other than a color and busyness. And uh, in general, the whole thing, you know, um, has pace pace and momentum. And it's funny throughout um, without being winky or, um, or too eager to please. And in that sense, I was just gr- grateful for it. I loved spending the whatever it was, 90 minutes or two hours with these characters. I am interested to hear more about the gender politics. I thought... They were the you know kind of Mr. Mom humor is is behind the time by either one or twenty years or one <laughs> or or one or two thousand years depending on your point of view, 
Um, but at moments I thought within the context of this universe, it fit with the mid-century modern aesthetic. It was kind of an antique thing, and the excuse for it was this guy is this preposterously... I mean, he's so funny the way he tapers, right? He begins as this massively broad-shouldered cartoonish figure and then tapers down to these tiny little legs. Um, you know, there, there's some sense of preposterous exaggeration, like beyond caricature. Um, and we'll get to her body type, I'm sure, and thereby the Anthony Lane, Re- Lane review um, in a moment uh, after this oration. But um, And it just seemed to me in, in fitting with his character, which has this retro and kind of otherworldly cartoonish feel that maybe, you know, th- this was not a revelation on behalf of all men or fathers, uh, but within the context of this universe, it made some sense. And then it was enlivened so much by, you know, t- taking the m- essential mystery and, you know, kind of mood swings of an infant and placing it in that universe where superpowers are how they manifest themselves. I just thought it was clever and I went with it. But by and large, I loved this. I thought it was really fun. I had one comeback about, Julia, about what you were saying about the insubstantial ideas of this movie. It may be that the most substantial ideas aren't taking place in the family context where it is a pretty retro story. But I thought that the villain had some real substance for a superhero villain. I won't give away exactly who the villain is or how it all shakes down, what is behind Screenslaver. There's a moment when Screenslaver sort of gives his life philosophy in a villainous monologue. And uh, and my 12-year-old, who is sitting next to me, said with some surprise during this monologue, wait, they're kind of right. And, uh, <laughs> and it's not that often, I think, that a kid watching a superhero movie or an animated movie sees that the villain has a point of view that's interesting, even if it ultimately needs to be destroyed. And Although screen slavers rant about how we're all addicted to our screens and, you know, we become googly eyed zombies as soon as we stare at one uh, is something that we're familiar with. It's usually something that the good guy says in a movie and not the bad guy. So that seemed a little more complex than one might have expected. I think that's right. Um, I felt like Anthony Lane's take on that screen slaver rant, which is that uh, it seemed a little bit like slightly cliched hokey doomsaying. Uh, was correct. I also, while we're here, it seems like maybe we should talk about the much debated <laughs> Anthony Lane review of this movie in which uh, one of the paragraphs basically amounted to like, bazoinga, and uh, I really like Elastigirl's body. And there were intimations of an erection uh, in the regal Ewok or whatever. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> What did you think of Elastigirl's bod and what did you think of Anthony Lane's review of it? Or rather, the movie in which it existed. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Incredible or Parr both have cartoonishly exaggerated, slightly dysmorphic, if that's quite the right word in this context, context bodies where, as I said, he's this, you know, preposterous inverted triangle of a human. Um she's a pair right she's like a, a a crazy pair and when you notice it i i saw this movie after absorbing the controversy about the lane review but i mean she has a 14 inch waist and a whatever a 44 inch you know i mean it, it, it just it's just insane how how they've rendered her body and it's incredibly distracting now i didn't find it arousing right like i find that a very peculiar response on the part of anthony lane to both have and then to confess 
I mean, I'm not sure what rhetorical work he was trying to accomplish there, but I, I do think he's pointing to something real when they say they've chosen a very odd way to cartoonishly exaggerate her proportions. Yeah, I basically would defend Anthony Lane a bit. I mean, her bod is bodacious and intentionally so in the same way that he's in, he's a um, caricature of masculinity. She's a caricature of hot maternal femininity. So she's an hourglass. She's not a she's not a um, fashion plate coat hanger bod. She's like a feckin'. Mom bod bod. Well, and her stretchiness has something sexy about it too, which he also makes some some cracks about, right? I mean, just the idea that she can form herself into any shape, and she's this sort of hyper athletic. You know, she can turn into a trampoline or a parachute, and he makes these kind of dirty jokes about that. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> that that review was a little eyebrow raising, but I can't get too offended by it. I mean, I sort of feel like there's a something of a movement in criticism, at least in a casual online mode of criticism, which Anthony Lane actually doesn't work in, publishing for a, a venerable print magazine as he does. But there's sort of this uh, this new line of like, you're, you you as a critic are a body responding to the screen, right? Um, there's that there's that podcast Thirst Aid Kit, you know, that's all about hot guys on screen or something. It it tends to only go one way because there's just something uglier about a male critic salivating in a review over a female body than the reverse, right? Because of what we've been culturally conditioned to hear over and over again. So I don't know. I guess it didn't offend me that much given that he wasn't insulting anyone or putting anyone down or letching after a real person. <laughs> I guess he. it seems to me like he has a right to, um, to get a hard on in his popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god my favorite gabfest moment in the <laughs> show that just happened <laughs> willa paskin wrote that great piece for us last year when there was the contratemps around uh david edelstein's remark about gal gadot in his wonder woman review saying basically defending the right of critics to respond emotionally to the humans on screen or the human-like figures figures on screen in both the figures of Mr. and Mrs. Incredible, you get exaggerated versions of masculinity and femininity. But the Mr. Incredible version is basically ridiculous. Like, Mr. Incredible isn't hot. Nobody wants to ship Mr. Incredible. Maybe not nobody. But I think he's less sexualized and more a figure of ridicule than Mrs. Incredible, who is ba- who basically looks in her suit with her like body straining at its whatever the heck mesh uh mesh darling she looks like someone in a in a comic book that's less smart than this and i i think it's reasonable to call that out whether by erection in the pages of the new yorker or a slightly more distance <laughs> lens but he's not calling it out right he's praising it he says thank mm. the lord for elastigirl I think he's, but but noting that basically she's a she's like a, a sex pot, uh, like whatever. I'll give him a little a little latitude to note it in the manner of his choosing. <laughs> right. Well, giving new definition to a tentpole movie, I suppose. I mean, the thing is that. <laughs> thank you, Dana. The thing is that, you know, having sh- shoulders that are fifteen feet apart from one another suggests, you know physical masculine physical ability 
and having them be so exaggerated suggests like anachronism. Like that's that's the that's the effect of him sort of tapering down from hyper strength to kind of spindly, you know, you know, almost frightening frighteningly fragile legs in a way. Like this top bizarrely top heavy body suggests that when operationalized he has physical power whereas having right. gigantic hips and butt like that suggests childbearing right if you were going to primitive signification it suggests you know the ability to bear children which is just to me is gendered in a fucked up way well and here's the other thing so the the stereotypes of masculinity are rendered in him uh, to the border of the way where you look at the men in the muscle magazines where you're like those muscles aren't for use right like you you mm-hmm. are uh, you are if your arms have like thanksgiving turkeys in them to the point where you can't actually <laughs> lower them lower than 45 degrees that's not a body that's not a set of muscles that's designed for utility and so hit you with that taper triangle and those spindly legs and him sort of looking like he's always about to topple over. Obviously, he is capable in the movie, but his body is rendered in such a way that you recognize the ridiculousness of the stereotype, whereas her body is rendered in such a way where it just the, the stereotype increases her capability. Like all that extra fat she's got stored in her took us like is what spreads out and to make her like a flying squirrel creature or whatever. And so... It feels like the movie's mm. forms critique the masculine stereotype, but praise the feminine body stereotype. And I think that's part of what makes me uneasy. Uh, I'll take the final word here. You have to thread a very fine needle between um, servicing the nostalgia of the audience and becoming brittily repetitive. This one is just uh, beautifully executed, top to bottom. I really, really liked it. Okay, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about uh, whatever business we have to take care of. Um, Julia, presumably we have some. What do, what do we got? Just a bit. Uh, first, a reminder that Summer Strut is happening soon. We are looking for your struttiest songs. We want to refresh your boppiest playlists. So send your struttiest recommendations to us on Twitter using hashtag Summer Strut or find our Summer Strut post on Facebook.com slash CultureFest and leave them there. We are closing submissions soon, so get to it. In Slate Plus today, we're going to talk about the recent spate of incidents in which citizens have heckled or ousted Trump administration officials in public places and what we think about the both ethics and practicability of those heckles. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. Bikram was a pioneering yoga master who helped turn yoga into a mass consumable within the United States. Working first in India and then in Japan, he more or less invented what's now known as hot yoga or sometimes simply as Bikram yoga or Bikram. He came to the United States in 1972. He was something of a self-mythologizer, but he claimed that his first student was Elvis Presley and his second was Nixon. There came after that a perfect convergence of Los Angeles, the Mead decade, and Bikram himself, a magnificently charismatic figure. He became almost a cliche, a Rolex-wearing guru, and from there evolved into a self-evidently hateful and manipulative human being who worked upon the insecurities of American celebrities and hangers-on to become 
quite a celebrity himself. ESPN has now done a podcast on Bikram. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. I had had polio when I was 11 years old, and I thought I got out scot-free, but in my mid-20s, everything began to fall apart in my spine. And by my mid-30s, even chiropractors couldn't help me. In 1974, Bonnie Jones Reynolds was married to Gene Reynolds, the producer of the television show MASH. Loretta Swit, Hot Lips Houlihan, came to dinner, and uh, Loretta was so excited. She had been to a, uh, a class with Bikram, and she was just absolutely bubbling over with enthusiasm. She was standing up and doing poses for us and, and um, you know, urging us, please, please, to go to Bikram. And so I walked into the class, and, and Shirley MacLaine was in front of me, and I kind of hid behind her. And he started the class, and all of a sudden he said, Who that? Who that? Hiding behind Shirley. Come out here. Like, oh, look that junk body. Oh, look that junk body. He said, You. He said, what's the matter with you? And I told him about my neck. He said, you come to me every day for two months. I give you new life. I said, you promise? He said, I promise. And he did. Dana, let me start with you. I mean, uh, I think thanks to a variety of articles over the last 10 or 20 years, I think we've all encountered at least one or two of them. We sort of understand that yoga is not simply some ancient Indian spiritual practice. What it really is is the intersection of an English or British culture, a colonial culture of calisthenic exercise as it intersected with much older, even ancient Indian practices. I kind of knew that coming in. What I didn't really know was um, this specific history of hot yoga, what hot yoga was, what Bikram was, who he was, what a showman he was, and how he insinuated himself into the kind of California power structure and became a celebrity himself. What was news to you here, and and you know what what's your relationship to yoga and hot yoga? Hmm. I mean, first of all, I highly recommend this podcast. It's really fantastic, and it, it makes me think about. I, I don't want to get too far into this, so we don't get more hate mails about it. But I feel like it's the anti my favorite murder, right? I mean, this podcast is a great example of something that knows exactly what it wants to do, signposts that sort of limits and puts parameters around the story it wants to tell, and then tells it beautifully, so that you hear from all the sides of the story that you want to hear from. I thought I I co-signed that and also thought you were going to say Wild Wild Country, which is another recent thing we discussed that it reminds me of a little bit. While being better put together. Yeah. No, I think this raises some of the similar questions about how gurus cultivate their followers and the kinds of abuses that can arise from that uh, combination of ardent devotion uh, self-improvement, a sense of self-improvement outside the normal structures and rules of society and fuzzy power dynamics. Um, like there's just a lot of potential for exploitation there, um, which becomes a, the- a theme and a thread in this uh, podcast. And I I completely agree that it's very well crafted, meticulously, carefully um thoughtfully told and worth your time. Right. And exactly what was missing from Wild Wild Country that I think we all agreed was missing was exactly the sense of what the guru's charisma was, like what it was about the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, the the guru in Wild Wild Country had that drew everyone to him, right? Everybody was talking about this mystical appeal, but we never really saw it spelled out. And this podcast does that perfectly so that you really do understand how someone sort of translates from a regular, ordinary person who's interested in studying a physical discipline 
to someone who is, if not completely brainwashed by a cult, at least made more vulnerable than that you would have thought they might become. I think the podcast illustrates that beautifully with by interviewing all kinds of different people who were drawn for different reasons to the practice. Steve, as for our own history with yoga and Bikram yoga, I'm interested to hear that from you guys because I know Julia has done some Bikram before. I've been doing yoga on and off, had a practice, as they say, for, I don't know, um, all of this century, I guess. I think it started around the, around 2000 that I started to do yoga. But it's always been the exact opposite of what Bikram yoga is. I guess vinyasa, kind of flowing, mm-hmm. you know, soothing, nice yoga. And I've never had any interest in doing Bikram. I do have a very close friend who I really want to hear this podcast because she's sort of a Bikram changed my life person. She does it mm-hmm. almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, right. She uses it to some degree to deal with addiction issues. She's a recovering alcoholic and sort of feels like her Bikram practice, which is pretty brutal, is a part of that. Um, and to me, it just always had the, everything I would hate about a yoga class, that it's um, mm-hmm. that it's hot, <laughs> that you're in a really hot room, that you're looking at a full-length mirror, which so- sounds absolutely horrible. I mean, the whole reason I do yoga is essentially to forget my body and sort of feel like I'm in some space where I don't have to be uncomfortably judging myself. And Bikram seems to be a lot about that. So be- because you've done some, Julia, I think along with other kinds of yoga, I want to hear your experience with it. Yeah, I don't want to overstate my having done Bikram yoga. I think I've done three or four classes in in a similar 15-odd year career of doing yoga on and off of various kinds and probably playing with every kind of yoga uh, and settling on the types of yoga that are appropriate to my body type. So when I was young and springy doing a lot of like fast-paced vinyasa and Bikram and Kundalini classes, and then as I've gotten older and more uh, cautious <laughs> with my body doing like Anusara and more alignment focused types of yoga but uh, yeah i mean bikram was very different it, w- it 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 was a combination between an aerobics class and like a cleanse or a fasting regimen because the experience of just sweating that much and honestly kind of getting a little bit dehydrated or lightheaded like you sort of got one of those exercise highs off of it and i could see how you would become very addicted to and focused on it I feel more sympathetic to the idea that when you heat yourself up that hot, you think your muscles are stretchy and bendy in ways that they may not actually be, and then you are prone to injure yourself. Not a subject that was covered in this podcast and possibly not something backed by medical science, but it definitely was too aggressive for me um, and and felt sort of like the wrong set of things to do to my personal body. But I didn't know any, you know, I, I was only a dabbler, so didn't know the community well enough to know about any of the um, scandals or turmoils that are reported in this podcast. Steve, yeah. what about you? Have you done yoga? Do you do yoga? And have you tried this kind? I love yoga, but I'm a vinyasa flow guy all the way. I've never done Bikram. But you know, I think it's important for those who haven't heard, well, it's a beautifully produced uh, podcast documentary without question. And for those who haven't heard it yet, um, to sort of or- orient you in the discussion, I think there's a good brutality so to speak, to Bikram yoga and a, and a bad brutality to Bikram the man and the culture surrounding the man. And that's how those two kind of flowed into one another and enabled one another that in part makes the, the documentary so, the podcast so gripping. Um, you know, essentially what he did was, you know, he cranked the heat of the room, as Julia says, up. It's very hot in the room and you only get hotter. The classes are long and absolutely grueling. You're looking into a mirror, but, but Bikram himself... In, in the classes that he taught was a huge presence because he wasn't this soothing, 
namaste, you know, um, gooey kind of soft uh, presence, insinuating presence. In fact, he was quite quite nasty and quite ad hominem and ad feminem. And he really kind of tried to break you down physically in the hot room, but also mentally and, mo- and emotionally with the promise of rebuilding you as a person capable of, of peace and self-possession. But of course, that wasn't his goal. And, and one objection I have to this podcast, which is nothing against the people who created it, who with the material they were working with did something both uh, beautifully crafted and quite noble. But it's it's simply that the story to me is just so familiar in a way. I mean, essentially, it becomes clear very early on that what Bikram is interested in is creating a multi-level marketing scheme as protected by copyright litigation. Like he he creates something that's 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 legally his. He franchises it. Um, it begins to be called disparagingly McYoga. He defends it against that. He says, so what? I've eaten at McDonald's. I like it. This was a guy who was interested in power and money all along. It's fairly obvious early on. It's screamingly obvious pretty early on. I mean, it doesn't even really take getting very far into it to understand that this guy is an incredible megalomaniac. And the one interesting thing to me is, um, I mean, and he's, and he's clearly into what's really repulsive about it and uh, is that he wants to create a gigantic family with an abusive, with him in the role of the abusive stepfather who grooms and then freely abuses its daughters. I mean, he's interested in sexual power, which is where the documentary inevitably goes. Um, and it, it's very good at exposing the mental dynamics of that, right? At one point, I think a woman who was a victim says the victim is the one who ends up feeling guilty. Um, And it's extremely powerful for putting in front of us again that dynamic, which reproduces itself in many different environments and in many different ways. Um, So I'm not trying to run down the value of it. It's just I find tiresome. As soon as one of these guys shows up with a fucking Rolex, can we please just run for the exits? And the one interesting thing to me is really setting aside the sexual abuse and the gender aspects of it. So focusing maybe on the men who were very attracted to Bikram, who were not the object of his sexual attentions as far as we know. What is it about uh, about spirituality as it manifests itself within a totally capitalist paradigm, right? Where spirituality and self-help become inextricable and therefore you're vulnerable to the guru with a Rolex. It's, it's actually, the Rolex isn't hidden, it's flaunted. And that's part of the appeal. And it must have something to do with the original or one of the original psychic wounds being delivered is the idea that you can't you can't emerge as a fully uninjured, successful, self-actualized human being within a capitalist society, i.e. as rich and beautiful. And so to me, that that aspect of how like narcissism and 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 the attempt to lose one's ego come together in yoga. It's there when I do yoga, right? It's like I both want to feel as though I've lost my earthly cares and and this horribly burdensome sense of self and self-centeredness. At the same time, I like want a taut tummy and a nice tushy and like to look better and, you know, whatever in order to like compete in the marketplace of, of, of branded selfhood. And to me, that is that is gripping. I mean, I guess I'm sort of arguing against myself now, but I mean, you know, it, it, I had to work my way through kind of the tiresome tropes of the genre, over-familiar tropes of the genre. But at the end of the day, this is quite compelling. No, I think that's so interesting. And, and the other, in addition to uh, wanting to lose yourself in a selfless and ancient meditative practice in order to have a nice butt, 
and look more like Elastigirl. Uh, there's also the ego in the yoga too. Like, ooh, I'm like really yeah. acing my warrior pose today or like, oh, I'm getting better at this, you know, lunge twist thing that I added to my practice a year ago and now I can really do it and I'm like gonna master crow pose next. Like there's there's achievement within the within the ohm, you know, um, but the the thing that I think is most novel and interesting about this um, documentary, and that I is the reason I would most recommend it, even to people who feel like they've now read a lot of different Me Too stories set in different communities, and you know, there've been a a, a number of depressing and inspiringly well-reported instances of careful reporting of abuse within different communities, and you might think. Wow, I sure know it's prevalent. What a drag. Not sure I need to hear another story. Here's why I would say you should listen to this. I think it reckons more interestingly than almost any other thing I've read or listened to with the question of how you separate the creation from the creator when the creator turns out to be an abuser. Yeah, there's a whole episode that's essentially the wrap-up, right, where Bikram's not even a character anymore. It's all about the teachers who trained with him and the community he built and, and how they deal with the revelations. And that that is a great way to end the podcast because it, that makes it less than a tabloid story. It's not just sort of look at this awful thing that this one guy mm-hmm. did and let's all hate on him, right? I mean, it really, I feel like this is a very systemically focused documentary podcast, and I appreciated that element. Yeah, I completely agree with that assessment. This is not exploited at all. It's very sober. Uh, it's beautifully done. Okay, highly recommended. It's under the thirty for thirty, which really just we should say as a as a quote unquote media brand or property has been terrific from the beginning uh, in its ESPN form um, on TV uh, and continuing it as a podcast. This is just a wonderful installment. Okay, moving on. Daniel Schrader is uh, first our intern, then became our production assistant out of sheer competence and likability. Um, Daniel, welcome back <laughs> to the it. hot mic. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be a fun discussion. I just I have to say that this discussion was inspired by the fact that when we all went upstate for our live show in the last few weeks, that um, that Daniel started going around quizzing us all about our birth dates and had just having sort of off mic astrological conversations, and it was it inspired so much goofiness, fun, and and sort of faux rancor that we decided we had to bring it to the podcast. <laughs> There's nothing better than fun and faux rancor. <laughs> I don't know how faux that rancor was, but <laughs> we'll see. T- tell us. About about uh, astrology, your relationship to astrology, and many of these words like this rising, that sinking will mean nothing to anybody. So orient us a little bit before you um, before you read us. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, I'd love to hear what y'all think about astrology, but I, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's just something that I've kind of fallen into as a queer person. It's kind of where we like to live is in astrology. It lets me... Um, uh, have fun with this thing that is also mathematical in a way because like where you're where the planets are when you're born is just like a thing it's a fact that's not something you can change but everything after that is just magic so like where you interpret oh well you're an Aquarius sun so that means this or you're like you're a Taurus moon so that means that that's all interpretation and um, I, I like it because it helps me understand my relationships with other people either before I get to know them or after I've gotten to know them I'm like oh that's why we've had such a difficult time with this or like, oh, that's why that friendship ended because like our signs were not compatible. And I know that that sounds crazy, but it's it, surprisingly it, accurate. I love you. 
and it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, let's let's just start with this, okay? I really want to get to our individual charts and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and our history with astrology, etc. I am curious because some of the reading that we did for this was talking about um, not so much queerness, but millennialness, and you know, sort of the the um, anxiety and discomfort mm-hmm. of the moment that we're living through as one of the reasons that people are returning to astrology to the extent they are. And I I feel like I grew up in the beginning, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, when astrology was much more uh, you believe it or you don't. Right. There wasn't sort of this room for this interpretive framework that was playful that you could sort of half believe, but not but use, but laugh about. And uh, and the idea was really that you were either somebody who was cynically using it. Hey, baby, what's your sign to pick up someone in a bar? Or you were kind of a, a googly eyed woo woo crystal person who just believed anything that came along. And Zombie so you, chump. Right. Zombie chump. So you picked your side. And I feel like in those days, although I had a really close friend as a kind of adolescent, pre-adolescent, she's still a close friend who was really into astrology. So I had I knew quite a bit about it and would have a lot of conversations about it. But I always picked the side of the skeptic. So the fact that there's this gray area now where you can kind of believe but not believe or read your um, follow your astrology Twitter feed, even if you're laughing at it, is is just a new zone to me that I can't I can't get with. I'm still in the in the is it black or is it white? Well, we also read so we read four or five essays that you prepared or pointed us to, Daniel, in preparation for the segment. I think it's four separate essays that have been published since the first of this year in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New York Times again, and some other august institution, maybe New York Magazine, that all agree astrology, it's back, it's a thing, it's different right now. And then they all dip into like their theories of why and or how and enumerate about 27 different identifiable theories of both why, what's going on and why, which I found to be fascinating. Like, it seems like that the, the uh, august journalistic bodies agree that the signs are there, that astrology is a thing now, again, in a slightly transformed way, but don't agree about why or how. I will enumerate a few of them, and then you can tell me that you, you can you can set, shed some color on it, you know. So theory one. The millennials love astrology. Their lives are so hard. The world is so uncertain. It gives them a guide and a, and some fun. Two, Trump, the Trump theory of astrology. The world is hard and stressful for everyone. Everyone has a ton of anxiety. They want to look to a, a governing body or a theory of interpretation beyond the chaos that we see swim in. Uh, three, uh, queer astrology. Astrology is something that is big in the queer community and is sort of a way of interpreting and responding to the world that has resonances with queer identity uh, in in ways that are taking on broader prevalence and, and communicability through the internet. Four, astrology is a meme. I actually think this is a really interesting idea that astro- that like each sign has a set of associations that can then be um, iterated across the web. And also, it reminds me of our conversation about the Google art thing, like astrology feeds on things everybody understands, plus narcissism. And like those Mm -hmm. are the recipes for virality. So things that tell you about you or uh, you know, help you understand your perspective or your lens. Before I get to those, here, my question is, did any of those memes, uh, did you identify with any of them? Well, no, because I will to answer <laughs> your question about my personal relationship with astrology. I am a Sagittarius. Oh, I know. <laughs> he knew the minute he met you. Um, in general, all of these things, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, uh, astrology, any of the the you know any workshop you take as part of like management training 
that's like where you're this type person or this type person or you're in this quadrant or you're this that. I love those things, not because I believe in them, but because any thing like that that describes how different people respond to stimulus in the world and act in the world, I think can facilitate useful thinking about how people handle things differently and like being sensitive to and understanding that everybody's wired a little differently and people might respond to things or see things differently than you is generally a productive and useful practice. And the astrology of like what's going to happen to you today has always struck me as completely useless. The astrology of like uh, you are like this because of X, the because of X I think is bullshit, but any system that's like you are like this and she is like that. I always love thinking about those things. So that strikes me as the part that would be fun. Mm -hmm. I'm a Sagittarius. The baseline descriptions of Sagittarius have so little to do with my personality that I've always been like, well, this this particular system is useless to me because it's like Sagittarius is a wild adventurer, gets so bored with stasis, always wants change and the thrill of the new. But like if she's not here, she's in Bali. And I'm like, I like security. I like order. Well, that's because your moon is in Taurus. <laughs> and we will get into all of that. I'm happy to explain what those things are. But I think, honestly, you gave like the four different reasons that you had. And it's all of them. And I know that that's not a good answer. But it's part of the millennial embracement of it is like we we have no idea like what our lives should look like, what stability looks like, because we don't have that in a way that our parents did. So we have to look outside of the we have to look up to the stars to figure out who we are or what we're supposed to be. Um, I do also think that like it's a very queer thing because it is so uh, mystical in a way and kind of different and not uh, not just this straightforward like here are these things because science or math or anything like that. Um, and so it's it's just all of those things. It's a meme. It's an experience. It's <laughs> I know I sound like a crazy person, but wait, can no. I can I just speak up as a straight person for the queer skeptics out there who are listening right now, saying, "Wait a second, don't put me in that bucket." Yeah, our, Ben. Our producer ben, Frisch, ben is gesticulating wildly. We that he get belongs it. to that. You're an Aquarius. <laughs> Not we get all it. gays. <laughs> <laughs> and just to come off what Julia said about never having identified with her sign, it's pretty embarrassing that I, as a lifelong complete skeptic and atheist about astrology and other things really do identify with my sign. <laughs> yeah. I'm a cancer. And if I had to pick one sign, I feel like reading down the list of the, the standard descriptions, it would be me. Plus, I have the cutest little avatar. Who wouldn't want to be a crab? A crab mm-hmm. is a great is a great little symbol. So um, although I don't really read my horoscope or anything like that, I think this is just You're all related good. to my you birthday pride. I feel like I have the best birthday, July 1st. And that sort of goes along with having the best sign. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, a centaur is all right. I could fucking <laughs> pierce that crab with an arrow. <laughs> Uh, Yeah. So like here's where we get into um, like Julia not really feeling like she's a Sagittarius and uh, Dana really feeling like she is a cancer. Uh, We get into uh, what are the three major signs of any person's chart, which are your sun sign, your moon sign and your rising sign. Your sun sign is uh, if you ask anyone on the street, what's your sign? They'll respond with their sun sign. That's the one that everybody knows. And that is uh, your setting of your personality, like who you are, what like how you present, like how you just present to yourself kind of like the way you think about things. Um, that's just your personality. And then your moon sign is your emotional self. It's where you like retreat for comfort, but it's also where you can co- become complacent. And um, it's 
a place where you feel safe. So your rising sign is um, what you aspire to, something that uh, you need to bring into your life. Uh, if you think about a, like the different astrological signs as energies and predispositions to um, what you or who you are, then your rising sign is something you need to draw forth and bring into your life. So I am a Virgo sun. So that means that I'm a very earthy. I'm, I'm, I'm your mom friend. I want to like take care of you and like make sure everyone's having a good time. But I also have a Leo rising. So like I want everyone to look at me while I'm taking care of them. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't know if we want to like dive into each of your What's charts your moon? first. My moon is in Taurus. So that means that um, every day is a cheat day. It means that I like really love earthly delights and I um, can be a bit bullheaded at sometimes because it's the the bull. That's what Taurus is. And so um, I can get very complacent and just like wanting to stay home and watch TV and just enjoy the earthly delights of things as opposed to getting out there and being with people. So the moon sign is sort of your regressive self. It's yes. Right. Okay. It's, it's considered sometimes your past. Like that's a, one podcast I listened to referred to it as everyone has a moon because we were all imperfectly held as children. No matter how great your parents were, there was something that they didn't do that you needed that now. Well, you, this is combining you know. nature in the <laughs> form know, of planets I know, I know. and nurture in, in the form of planets as opposed to genes. That's just one person's interpretation okay, of it. I'm going to, I want, a, I, because of the narcissism of this, I definitely want to know more. B, the skeptic in me is just going to raise the the point that if there are 12 signs, the thing that this rising and moon thing does is like basically give you a 25, like it like triples your odds of having one of the fucking signs be like, oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> like, yes, certainly. I'm, I'm not going to refute that, of course. But I do think that when someone, when you find out what your rising sign is, some people are like, oh, that explains why I never felt like a Sagittarius or like why I never felt so much like a Virgo. All right. So explain why I never felt like a Sagittarius. Because you have a Taurus rising. So you present to the world as um, a as a, a someone who is a hard ass, but also so warm. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, <laughs> you are uh, you can be scary, but you're nurturing at the same time. Uh <laughs> It's it's interesting because you and Dana both have such motherly charts, but they're in such. Julia is like a monster that's snuggling you in its arms. Right, and we're and Dana's just like the big soft pillow that wants to like snuggle you and take care of you. Wait, so what's my moon and my rising? So your uh, so you are a Cancer Sun. Your uh, moon is in Sagittarius. Ooh, and your uh, rising is a Virgo. So to the world, you present as like this nurturing loving mother figure um your moon mean for you your sagittarius i tend to think of it as my friends who do have sagittarius as their moon you love to run away from your problems it's like oh if i can travel somewhere then my and i'm not in the same room as my problem my problem doesn't exist dana uh, just made an ecstatic face of recognition <laughs> let the record show also <laughs> i like thinking about your chart specifically dana i was like oh this explains dana's career like this is just this is how she ended up what she's doing, because as a cancer, you don't approach things uh, directly. And um, so like I thought, like, wait, because you scuttle sideways, you towards scuttle them. sideways. And so <laughs> scuttle, you scuttled scuttle. up to film criticism because weren't you in a Ph.D. program before this? And I just find that is a very like interesting <laughs> route to getting to film criticism. I grabbed my career with my pincer and scuttled back into my hole. Exactly. Rising is Taurus. And what's my moon? Your moon is in Libra. Ooh, that gives me the face of recognition because aren't Libras like 
balancing equivocators who Mm -hmm. like to see things from all sides. Yes. And they're also very people people. Um, Hmm. And it it means that you can maybe get stuck in trying to find the balance too much. Fuck, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) All right, do Steve. Steve. (laughs) Okay. So... I'm not going to I'm I'm going to go ahead and preface this Ben and Steve. I promise this won't just be an Aquarius roast, but Wait, is Ben also an Aquarius? Ben is also an Aquarius. But um Aquariuses are much more in, into the ideas of people than people themselves. Ooh. <laughs> um they love concepts, they're experimental, non-linear. They curate their friends like an art collection. And um, they, they'll make a snap judgment on you and you can't change their mind about what they think about you. I don't think that sounds like Steve. Uh, what are Steve's other signs? Uh, so I don't have, Steve doesn't know his time of birth, so I just have his moon, which is in Gemini. And that, when I told Lena that, she was like, how are you ever able to schedule a recording with him? Um, just because Geminis are flighty. They are, um, they have two two thoughts about everything. They have... Thoughts they present, thoughts they keep back. They are, um, they, his combo of signs means that he thinks he needs a reason to feel things. And if, and Steve, if you don't have that reason, then you don't understand why you're feeling something. You're like, oh, this, this feeling is terrible. Aquariuses don't want to deal with other people's feelings but don't understand why people don't care about theirs. <laughs> this is okay, Aquarius so Rose. The water bearer just got scalded. So, right. so astrology is true is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an infallible science. Wait, does that resonate for you at all, Steve? I think every word you said probably fits me, but I'll, you know, these things are, are fashioned as as mirrors, right? I right. mean, you know, you're going to see it no matter what. But also, Daniel knows us. I feel like the the missing birth time is. He, I I I bet dollars to donuts he's got a Virgo there. Fuck! Look what's happened to me. <laughs> I've converted her. <laughs> One out of three ain't bad. Oh, how do we uh, end this? End also, this now. <laughs> also, apologies to anyone listening who thinks I don't know anything about astrology. I might not. A lot of it is just from like talking to friends and meme accounts. Highly recommend all of that, though. No, I feel like this is a good represent. It is true that we could have uh, gotten Madam Who's Who to do our charts, but I think actually this is a good representation of the way in which uh, this resurgent astrology thing is being done, which people are learning and teaching themselves and figuring it out and using apps and tools to figure it out. So thank you for reading our charts. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. This was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Okay. So I was on vacation last week, as Julia was, and uh, I went to Mexico with my family and experienced lots of amazing cultural things, which maybe in the f- in the future will become part of endorsement fodder. But I'm going to give the shallowest possible vacation endorsement, which is a great movie to watch on a plane. The movie I watched on the plane home mm-hmm. from Mexico. It was a movie that was released earlier this spring that I declined to see or review or really consider in any way. And I think that was unfair to the movie. It was Molly's Game, oh. the, uh, the Aaron Sorkin joint, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, starring Jessica Chastain. 
It's a movie that's based on a true story about a young woman who runs a poker game, a legal poker game for very high stakes players uh, that's first in Los Angeles and then moves to New York and sort of gradually begins to transgress more and more ethical boundaries until she's running an illegal poker game and then there's an FBI sting. So that's all a true story. But Aaron Sorkin has rendered it in an Aaron Sorkin style with lots of snappy banter between Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba, who plays her lawyer. And, you know, lots of high stakes poker games that have taught voiceover kind of West Wing style narrating every move in the game as it happens. And uh, every single small role is cast with some interestingly seedy person like Michael Sarah as the perfect sort of Michael Sarah seedy guy role. Um, and uh, it's a plain movie. I don't know what to say. It's uh, it's really fast moving. It's fun to watch. It's somewhat tabloidy and somewhat predictable, but it's really kind of Aaron Sorkin at his best. My fear and the reason I wasn't interested in seeing it when it came out was that I thought, oh, that has to be hopelessly preachy, hopelessly wordy. It's going to be clambering up on a soapbox to make some kind of point about the essence of our times. And it's really not doing that at all. It's just really a fast, fun, playful sort of down and dirty gambling movie. And it's really fun to see Jessica Chastain play someone who's not nice, right? I mean, Jessica Chastain is so... Or like a a flinty crusader. Right. Yeah. Nice isn't the right word for the character she plays, but she always plays someone good, right? Someone essentially um, hardworking, stoic, and uh, and sort of admirable in every way. And even though this character, Molly, is someone that we sympathize with tremendously and is seen as a vulnerable person and not a, a villain, she does a lot of bad things and, uh, and, and goes into a lot of sort of... Um, creeps ethically into areas that Jessica Chastain has never crept before. And so it's fun to watch her do that. She also looks fantastic. The clothes are amazing. It's just sort of glitzy, good, plain fun. I'm so happy to learn that because I have such an Aaron Sorkin weak spot. Like, I I enjoy a good Sorkin dialogue as much as the next girl. My concern about that movie, given both his tendency for preachiness and her tendency to play flinty crusaders, was that somehow those two forces were going to align in the form of a gambling movie and they were going to preach at me. Like the trailer, as I recall, it seemed to focus on like her flinty unwillingness to give up the secret list of her gambling group. And I was like. I'm just not sure that the privacy of your secret gambling group is like the moral crusade that I'm most excited to see you two take on, Aaron and mm. Jessica. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even read this movie in terms of the morality of whether what she was doing were right or wrong. It was just more that she and Idris Elba were at odds and at loggerheads and they were always standing around in offices in <laughs> sleek clothing, arguing snappily it about it. It sounds good. No, like the trailer was like, you can't handle the secrecy of my gambling group. Like it just seemed... <laughs> it just seemed... Well, like the stakes were a little off balance or something. Yeah, the stakes are probably in the wrong place. I mean, whatever. Like, I can't really defend this movie. If I had been reviewing it, I probably would have given it a sort of I enjoyed this with reservations kind of review. But on a plane? Are you kidding me? I could not peel my eyes away. Fantastic. Mm. All right, Julia, what do you have? All right. Well, I I try to keep my birding recommendations to like one every four to six months for you guys. (laughs) That's like my Indian classical music reservation. (laughs) (laughs) Birding is my gamelan. Um, But I just read a book that honestly won't be of interest to you unless you are a birder. So just tune out if you don't care about birds or are not interested in them. But it's called Birding Without Borders by Noah Stryker, which tells the story of his effort in, I think, 2015 to um, rack up the world's biggest year. So if you are a birder, you keep a list of all the birds you've seen in your life. You might also keep a list of all the birds you've seen in a given year or in a given country or in a given state or in a given state within a given year. Birders love their lists. And one of the things they do is pursue 
sometimes the quest of trying to see a, a, the largest possible number of birds in a given year. There was, you may recall, that movie with Steve Martin and Jack Black about two birders trying to have the biggest American year. It was weird that that movie was ever made or exists. Anyway, it's a thing birders do. Um, but Noah Stryker writes this account of trying to see the most birds in the world in a year. Um, and just it's just a interesting travelogue. He starts in Antarctica, works his way all the way up for, through South America, North America, Europe, over through India, Africa, Asia, Australia, and uh, describes all the people he meets. He He's doing it at a moment where birding, uh, in part because of the internet, has become a local pursuit in many, many more places. His practice is to always bird with other people and always have those people be locals. So through kind of word of mouth or there are various birding sites where you can connect with other people who bird in different areas, having like a local Ghanaian birder take him through the interesting birding spots in Ghana and, you know, same everywhere else from Peru to Australia. Um, And it ends up being a really interesting portrait of the world and the birding community at this moment. Honestly, if you don't bird, I'm not sure how it would read because there's really just a lot of pages of like, and then I saw an ant pitta and he like does a good job describing what an ant pitta is. And I, Dana's making a like happy animal face. I kind of feel like maybe Dana could get with it, but, but you have to be either a birder or like pretty animal or bird curious, I think. But if you are, I really liked this book. The main thing I was thinking as you were talking was what a sweet book deal. <laughs> Go all around the world chasing birds, for, write a book for a very small audience and get to have all those experiences on the publisher's dime. Sign me up. I'm not sure. Uh, he do, he does describe the finances of it at one point. They don't sound cushy, nor does the year sound cushy because to operate at the pace he's operating at, he's trying to see something like between 30 and 100 bird new bird species for the year per day. So the pace is all right, so relentless. It's not, it's not the eat, pray, love of birding. Eat, pray, bird. No, it's like the trains, planes, and automobiles of birding. I don't remember the plot of that movie, actually. I'm not sure that's the right metaphor. <laughs> He's constantly on the go. He never gets to see anywhere. He's like racing from like jungle to uh, pine tree. And by the time he gets to, you know, several countries in, the local birders are like, let us take you to see our wonderful, local, excellent bird. And he's like, nope, I've already seen all of those. You got to I got to get this like boring sparrow. Take me to some suburb that has this boring urban sparrow that, that only exists in Germany or whatever it is. Anyway, if you, if this sounds of interest to you, uh, the book is Birding Without Borders by Noah Stryker. All right. So the uh, cultural product that's delighted me most in the last week or so is a, a podcast from uh, across the pond from England. It's uh, called Wooden Overcoats. Anyone here a Wooden Overcoats fan? Neither the podcast nor the garment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wooden Overcoat is a coffin. It's about a funeral. It's a fictional podcast about a funeral director on a little island, fictional island in the English Channel. It's so completely comically, self-consciously British. It's uh, delightfully... Uh, derived from Faulty Towers to the degree it may owe a royalty check to John Cleese. It's Faulty Towers without the racism, though. It's very clever. It's quick. It's joke, 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 but it's sweet. has a wonderful heart. Um, it's it's sharp. It's really sharply written. It's really nice. It's a little, maybe a little goofy nerdy at first, and then you get into the rhythm of it, and 
for the last two or three weeks, actually, I've been going out into my garden in the morning and weeding, weeding while listening to it, and just laughing out loud and and um like you know wearing earbuds in the kitchen, laughing out loud, and my family thinks that I've gone crazy. They haven't noticed the earbuds in, but it's uh it's very very well done, highly recommended, charming to the hilt. Uh, wooden overcoats. All right, All right. intriguing. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.